Talk for Freedom. I'm Cece. And I'm Chuck. And today's episode is human trafficking in my backyard. Some really hard to believe things that we have to share with you today. So we're coming to you live from downtown San Antonio at the Geekdom building. And just outside on Houston Street, they're having this nice parade for a rodeo. It's rodeo time in San Antonio. And it's amazing how many people are down there already today. You know, it's usually not hard to get people to come out for a parade or come out for our events like rodeo or fiesta or, you know, things we see like Super Bowl or Mardi Gras. But getting people to talk about human trafficking and even believe it's going on in their backyard or even at the tent of human trafficking event, that's usually much more difficult. Why do you think that is, Jack? Well, it's because there's a lot of misconceptions about human trafficking. And part of that has to do with our own misconceptions and our misunderstandings of it. And other parts has to do with what popular media has put on us. So the first one, uh, a lot of people mis- mis- misunderstand the difference between human trafficking and human smuggling. So I've said this several times, but human smuggling is a crime against the border. Human trafficking is a crime against a person. Breaking that down, a lot of us hear about human trafficking, we immediately think about foreign nationals, someone from another country coming into the United States and and being subjugated to labor or sex, and that does happen. But that's only about 20% of the victims in the United States. And it also happens in third world countries. I mean, I've traveled the world. I was in the military, I've been to lots of foreign countries, some of them third world countries, some of the first world countries. I've seen war and I've seen some of the horrors, what happens in humanity. And I remember seeing, you know, human trafficking in Korea, places like Korea. And uh, I was shocked at first, but then I went to this understanding of, or I went to this, where I bartered with myself and said, well, this happens here, but this doesn't happen in my country. It doesn't happen in my backyard. So it was a little bit easier for me to accept because it wasn't happening in my country. So a lot of us think that way. We think this is happening in Taiwan or Mexico or Guatemala or, or some other place, but it isn't happening in my backyard. The reality is it's happening here in the United States and it's happening in our own backyards and it's happening to American citizens, women and children. And it's happening to them, and the exploiters are other American citizens. So the difference between smuggling and trafficking is this. I want you to think about this. If, Cece, if I was to be the bad guy and say, say you lived in another country, you wanted to come here, and I said to you, well, you pay me $5,000, and I'm going to take you to San Antonio, then... Then, I'm, at first, I'm talking about a human smuggling scenario because you're agreeing to pay me and I take you to San Antonio. And we get up here after I get you to San Antonio and say, okay, Sue, Cece, have a nice life. Everything's good. Here's your documents. Here's everything you need. And I go back to doing my thing. Then we both just committed a felony, and that felony is human smuggling. Right. Yeah. So you've heard about some of those stories in the news, like the situation that happened here in San Antonio with the people in the back of the, of the refrigerator truck, right? Yes. So a lot of people, did people call you about that? Yes, actually. We, we actually did an interview with CNN over the phone for that. What do they call it, though? They call it human trafficking. Right. Yeah. So I had to educate them on the difference between human smuggling and human trafficking. And then that never got run. <laughs> of course, because people, that, that's 
the misconception people have. They think that that's human trafficking, but it's not. Right. Now, on the flip side, let's say we have that same scenario. You pay me $5,000, I get you up here to San Antonio. But when we get here, I'm 30, and I say, oh, Cece, thanks for the $5,000, but I have a cousin who has a restaurant, and I need you to go work at that restaurant because you owe me more money. You don't have to tell you how much money you owe me, but you're going to go stay at my cousin's restaurant. You're going to work there. Oh, by the way, your food, your rent, any clothes you need, anything like that, my cousin's going to pay for it, but that's all going to go towards your account, what you owe us. And then I force you to work there for little or no money in basically slave-like conditions. Now that case has gone from human smuggling to human trafficking. I'm now a human trafficker. And now in this case, only one of us is the felon, and that would be me, the bad guy. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So it's very hard. A lot of times people get confused between smuggling and trafficking because it's two different offenses. Right. But they can be interrelated. Right. Yeah. So human smuggling can turn into human trafficking very quickly. And I think, though, that um, here locally, I think what people don't understand, though, is that even though that is some of what happens with our, our trafficking victims, the majority is, is we traffic our own people, right? So although it is something that does happen, again, we are trafficking our own children, our own women, men, and that's, that's actually a really harsh reality to, to accept. Well, yeah, especially because a lot of people, when they think about human trafficking, the other thing that comes to mind is they think immediately about, I have a particular set of skills, yeah. and I will find you, because they think of Liam Neeson and all his coolness going out there and beating up the bad guys because they kidnapped his daughter in a poor country. And yes, that does happen, but very, very rarely. We think of human trafficking, and we think about chains, and we think about seedy back rooms where people with lots of money are, you know, having slave auctions. And though that does happen, that is few and far between what what the true reality of human trafficking is. And because we don't see that, because we're not seeing the victims out there being marched out with chains, and because we don't hear about the the secret evil bond villain and his his slave trade industry, we think, well, that's not happening in my backyard. Right. I have to say that the, you know, when we first started H-1-1 Freedom Chasers two years ago, we were actually using images like that um, with, you know, the the masking tape over someone's mouth or the chains on their legs and and hands and whatnot. Um, And when we, um, I actually heard Rebecca Bender talk about that and um, she was very graceful in how she said it. (laughs) But she was like, there's some organizations out there that are using these pictures and immediately I was like, I know that, that we are contributing to that bad image. And when she explained why uh, it was a terrible thing to do, I totally got it. So she said, you know, what you're doing is, one, you're misrepresenting facts, right? First of all, the actual picture of someone being treated that way is less than 5% of victims in the United States. Two, um, we're not actually, we're, 
we're not tr um, training people and educating people on what it actually looks like. So if they see a normal person out there, and even if they're giving them clues as to what they're going through, we're not going to identify that because we have this mental picture of someone chained up. And since this person's not chained up, then we're never going to be able to identify them. And then the other thing was the victims that are currently enslaved either sexually or labor, they will not be able to self-identify because they think, oh, since I'm not chained up that way, I must not. I must not be in that category. You know, I'm not, I'm okay. I'm still decently treated. And that's not doing good to anybody, um, to society and educating them and to these, um, you know, folks that are currently labor trafficked or sex trafficked. Yes, and that, that's one of the problems. We don't see it in our backyard because we don't see those images. Right. And even the people that are experiencing it, they're not able to self-identify or understand what's happening to them. So when we use words with them, when they actually do get rescued, we use words with them like victim and traffic and prostitute. It makes them angry. Because they're like, Mom, that's not me. That's not what happened to me. I'm not a victim. Right. I had a boyfriend, and my boyfriend got mean, and my boyfriend, you know, my boyfriend forced me to go on dates with guys because he owed money, or my boyfriend forced me to sleep with his friends because, you know, he had to for some reason. They don't identify themselves as a prostitute. They hate the word prostitute. It makes them upset because it's like, would you want to be called a prostitute if you didn't think you were one? No. Yeah. Okay. Would you want to be called a victim if you didn't think you were one? How about us when you use the word trap? Especially because that's kind of a difficult word, right? Because you're just like, what, what, is, what is trafficked? You know, what does that even mean? Especially for someone who's in it. Yeah, so I can totally understand where, you know, you're coming from when you try to educate us and tell us, you don't use those images, don't use these words. Um, and so we, I know we've totally changed that and tried to properly educate everyone as to what, what you know, this all really looks like. And so it's hard to even find the right words sometimes because you don't want to close someone off from sharing information that they might be experiencing, but at the same time you want to call it what it is, right? Right. So what, let's say you're talking to one of your friends, and yes, we can hear the parade in the background. <laughs> They're cheering us on. Cheering us on. Well, well we, we, yeah, we're going to accept that. We're going to accept that cheer. But, you know, if you're talking to a friend of yours, let's say you're talking to a friend of yours, and, and your friend is confiding in you that, you know, they started dating this guy two months ago, and he was really sweet at first, and he did all these things for her, but all of a sudden, he started getting mean, and he was always running out of money, and he owed people favors, and, and you know, they had to start sleeping with these other guys, and started having to have sex with the other guys to pay off these favors and pay this money. And he just seems like he's wanting to do it more and more. What would you say to that person? Yeah, that's definitely some red flags. You know, that's not a normal relationship. It's not if you are having to sleep with your friends, you know, your boyfriend's friends, then that's not normal. And so I, I don't know what I'd say immediately, but I know it would definitely trigger some red flags. Right. And in those scenarios, what a lot of us want to do is we want to say, oh, you know, you're being trafficked and he's making you prostitute. You're a victim. And if I told you, if, if, if that was you that's confiding in you as a friend and I started using those words like that, it's going to freak you out, right? Yeah, definitely. I would close off. I right. think I 
would stop sharing any personal information like that. Right. Because those are bad words. Those are those are the significant words. What, what we do is, is we want to immediately jump in and we want to fix the problem, we want to identify the problem, we want to protect that person. And it's very hard for them to self-identify because the imagery is out there, because of the misrepresentation of what human trafficking is, and because of just how slick these people are that you are doing it to them. That boyfriend's slick. He may be doing that to five or six other young women, but she doesn't know. Well, he has girls he works with. He, he has to go out and do work. He has to go out and do promotions at night. They don't know. So in that case, when you're talking to a friend like that, what can you do? Well, you can be someone that's a good listener. Right. And you can listen to what the words that they're using, and then when you want to start talking to them about it, use those same words back at them. Right. Because they, they, they identify with them, right? So right. What, what would you say if I had a friend who was um, telling me about some of these things? At what point do I do something other than listen? And, and what would that thing be? Well, if you're talking to your friend, first thing you want to do is, is not get this sudden look of expression of freaked out on your face. Yeah. You have to control your own emotions. Um, just like sexual abuse, the average sexual abuse victim will outcry. Uh, well, they do little outcries or they'll kind of test what they call testing the waters at least six times before they start to disclose that they were sexually abused. And that's because they're trying to get a reaction from you. However, if they start to disclose and they get a bad reaction, they'll shut down. And then you just literally throw them back several steps. So if you got a friend that's beginning to confide that in you, and they say things that was making want dates with other guys, and you know, he's, you know, I'm having to sleep with them. So when you hear those words, you can it back. So he wants you to date other guys. Why is he having you date other guys? You're asking probing questions. Sure. And why, how, did, how do you know you're supposed to sleep with them? And so you start hearing more and more of that information. Eventually, you're going to be able to get enough of that using their words because you're using their words and you're being empathetic. And a lot of that is building rapport over a longer period. We're talking hours. Yeah. This is a long conversation. Sure. So you're able to get enough information where you're able to build enough rapport then you're able to begin to introduce things going, like, well, you know that's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, having them think about yeah. what they just told you and what they're sharing. Until eventually what you're going to want to do is, is once they've shared that information and they've begun to, to think about what's going on there, you want to introduce the idea of, I'm here for you, I'm your friend, you know this is wrong, no, you shouldn't be treated this way. And I'm going to help. If you want my help, I'm here to help you get out of that situation. It's one of the ways that you want to introduce me out of that situation is notifying the police. Now, you bring that up right off the bat, people are going to shut down, turn off, that's it. But if you introduce that slowly, and a lot of advocates find this out, they introduce that slowly through a conversation, and you give them the option of doing it, that's the big thing. You have to remember with traffickers, they've taken away all their options and choices. So the way you don't pour with a victim, especially when it doesn't identify, is by giving them choices. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, you know, a lot of them 
will say, like I run into, uh, talk to literally hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, literally hundreds of, of women and men and, well, children too, especially children, that have identified themselves as sex workers. They use that word. Uh, they may talk about I did some dancing, which is stripping. They may talk about I did some dating, which is escort service. They may so they like the word escort because it, it tends to have a higher sense of class with it. Bill will identify as that. Well, we know that a lot of sex workers were actually trafficking victims, and I talked to a lot of adult older sex workers, especially uh, women that dance, and their stories are almost the same verbatim. Problems in early teens, a lot of them were sexually abused, they ended up leaving home, having no resources, abusive boyfriend, abusive boyfriend started introducing them to drugs, and they had to go on dates with other guys, and they found themselves in scenarios we talked about my boyfriends making me sleep with other guys. Until eventually they get out of that scenario, and usually what happens is the first advocacy group they go to wants to wrap their arms around them and make it all better and help them to rediscover the person they were before all this bad stuff started to happen to them. So let me ask you a question. You like your left arm? Okay. Well, you guys can never use your left arm again. You can't acknowledge its existence. You can't even think about it. It's not there. Put it away from your mind. Your left arm's not there anymore. Are you cool with that? Why not? Because I kind of like my left arm. I need it. Is it part of you? Yes. So a survivor who's gone through this process, do you think they've learned skills in this process? Yeah. Do you think they've acquired life experiences? Do you think they've made connections? Yes. Right? they built friendships. Right. they engaged an emotional level with other people, yeah. usually other survivors. Right. When we ask them to not acknowledge any of that, to go back to the person they were before all this bad stuff that had happened to them, we're asking them not to use the left arm. Because a lot of, especially families, we want to help them to recover the person they were that we knew before they ended up in this industry. And we're hearing more noise in the background from the parade. But we want them to help them to recover the person where before all this bad stuff are happening to them. I mean, what we have to acknowledge is we need to grieve the loss of that person. That person's gone forever. Right. That person's gone. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm divorced, right? And as a, as a person who's been through that, there's actually a grieving process that goes along with that. And you can't just, you know, forget the person you were married to for so many years overnight. And as much as people will tell you, you know, oh, there's money efficiency, blah, 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 but that means nothing to you. And so I think when you talk to these women about, oh, you know, just, we're just going to change your life overnight. It's like, no, how? You can't even see past, like, now. And so you have to go through that whole grading process. And like I said, you, you just have to go with them. You can't you can't push them, and you can't, you know, you can't lead them and guide them into it. You gotta just go with them, and, and the understanding that some people will stay on one stage of the grieving process longer than others, and some will zoom past a few and, you know, get past it faster. But in the end, they're they're all going to have to go through that 
much benefit. They have to grieve that loss. And it's on the other side of that loss, and the other side of that experience, the other side of that trauma that they have to work through, that they will discover the person who they have become. And that person is a combination between the person they were before they were involved with trafficking, the person they were in trafficking, and now that new person, that new life that was born into. A lot of Christian imagery there. As, as a believer, you and I both know that there was the person we were, and the, person, the new person we become in Christ. And that new person didn't happen instantaneously that day we were saved. I don't, I don't know about you, but the day I was saved, I had this comprehension that maybe, okay, I'm, I'm a new person in Christ, I'm all that, I'm, I'm not going to have these problems anymore. And I was really, really frustrated because I kept doing the same dumb stuff I did before I became a new creation in Christ. And I thought, well, what's going on here? Because it's a process. So a lot of people don't understand that we have to, like you said, walk through that process. We want to take this person, we want to wrap our arms around them, we want to seclude them off far away in some retreat somewhere and, and pretend like, you know, protect them from the world. Is that reality? Is that what they have to work with for the rest of their life? No, it's not. It's not. We should never expect someone to be living in a convent for the rest of their life because they were a trafficking victim or, right. or, you know, we shouldn't expect, they have to engage with reality, so. It sounds like culture shock, actually. It is, yeah, yeah. it is. It's very much culture shock. Yeah. So we have to be able to allow them to process a walk. So when people walk through trauma and pain, they're going to relapse. Right. So they may sometimes go back to drug use. They may even go back to, like a lot of the survivors I've talked to, they end up going back into it because it's the only way they know how to make money. Right. Or, or they feel like they really, some of them, I don't know how many survivors I've talked to said, well, I deserve this because I'm a whore. Because that was the imagery that was pushed on them the entire time. They have to process through that. So it's very hard for them, but if we walk through them in the process, because the opposite of someone who's being enslaved and trafficked is someone who's protected and connected. And protected comes from connections. So in a family, you know, you've got aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers, cousins. Okay. And, you know, I don't know about your family, but, you know, my family, if my family sees me doing dumb stuff, they're going to pull me aside and say, hey, what's up? What's it, that, in your family, if yeah, somebody sees definitely. you doing dumb stuff, right? Exactly. Are they going to try to intervene? Yes. So that's what connections are. Right. Traffickers sever all those connections. They do that intentionally. They work on the person to say, I'm the only one who can love you. I'm the only one that can care about you. And none of your other connections are good. No bad mouth your other connections. No poison the waters. No poison relationships. And because of all of that, and accepting that, and a person feels like the bad things they've done, they feel like they can't be forgiven and loved again. But then they come to know, I think that's the other part too that we miss, right, is that they come to know that trafficker and the, the people that, I guess, help the trafficker as their family. Right. And so their their thought process has changed, and so when we're trying to take them out of that situation, they still consider them family. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes they will come back. Right. And the trafficker, they call it the family, they call it the life, they call it the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all you can do is to, is to help work what they 
make this movement, helping a survivor to become the new person that they are meant to be. That means staying connected with them, loving them through all the garbage, right. and helping to recreate positive connections in their life. Positive connections that replace those other connections that they're going to have to grieve the loss of. I think of Hosea in the Bible, and right. how his wife, right, he has to keep going after her, Gomer. Right. Yeah, and that just represents God's love for us, right? So we, if, if we want to make a change, then we just have to go through that with them and not expect them to never relapse, not expect them to, you know, feel angry at us for trying to help them or anyone, really. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of being patient and understanding, and, and understanding, too, that it's a spiritual thing more than it is a physical thing. That person doesn't hate you for helping them. It's just they know different. They 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 don't know like you know, right? You you know that your family means well. They're not gonna force you to have sex with your friends, but they don't know that. Right. You know different. So. Yeah. And that's perfect. I love the way that you can incorporate that back with Jose and Coker. That is this great example of loving someone through the process. So. There's also a grieving process that has to happen in our communities and our in our society, with our neighbors and with ourselves. One of the things that happened with me was, is I told you, I've seen war, I've seen combat, I've seen the horrors of other countries and third world, I've seen some really nasty things. But I thought my country is safe. This is the United States of America. I live in one of the greatest countries in the world. That was my mentality. Now, I can't tell you if I love the greatest country in the world, factually, but it's just my opinion. Right. However, when I, in 2005, when I had to face the reality that these things that I saw in foreign countries were happening in my own backyard, and that, and that I was going to have to accept that, that went, I went through a grieving process myself. And a lot of people do that. They get shocked. As advocates, I can't tell you how many times people hear my talk and they go, is that really happening in my backyard? Is that really happening to my friends and my family? And I can't accept that, that it's happening. Yeah, no, I've had the same reaction, actually. And, I, and I've thought I've had some people who just tell me, no, I don't believe that. That's not happening. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I mean, you can't really argue with someone who's already made up their mind, right? But I hope that I've planted enough of a seed that they'll come back and actually research it. Or, or hopefully, hopefully they'll hear it somewhere or see it somewhere on the news. Because um, it never it never not happens that you speak about it and then that's all they hear for like the next month or so. Right. Stories or something because they're more... I guess their brain's been awakened to that topic. Right, they have to go through a grieving process. They're going to get shocked at first, and then they're going to get angry. They may even get sad. But they're going through the grieving process. At some point, people are going to become like, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to have to, you know, it goes out of the world, the heck with it, and that's called apathy. But the final stage of grief is acceptance. And once you've gone through the entire grieving process and you've accepted that this is something that's going on, it's that very acceptance which will motivate someone into action. So I, I say to advocates, advocates, don't get frustrated. Right. 
if you're talking to a group of people and it's the first time they've heard this, they're just the very beginning stages of the grieving process to say, my hometown in Texas, you mean my little itty bitty Texas town has human trafficking? My 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 safe neighborhood where my kids play, it could be happening here. It could be going on across the street from the school where my children go to high school. That's a shock. Right. And they have to grieve the loss of that sense of safety and security to the point where they're able to accept and that acceptance will motivate them. Right. Thanks for sharing that, Chuck, because I think that makes a huge difference when we talk to people, right? And for, for not, not just for us as advocates, but for them as well to understand that you, you're going to keep hearing it and you're probably going to go through those stages of shock, anger, sadness, apathy. But when you get to acceptance, see what it is that you can do to get involved. Right? Plug in somewhere, volunteer somewhere. If not, donate resources or your time somewhere. We've got, we've got one resource that we definitely want to plug into this um, episode called the Great Crisis Center. Um, they do a lot of victim work that um, they have hotlines, they have uh, counselors that are on staff that can talk to folks. So if you have a friend or someone that you've heard have a conversation like the one that Chuck and I described, this is probably a great place you can call and get some help, some guidance through how to talk to your friend, how to walk them through um, the whole conversation of maybe trying to get some help for themselves. Um, I know it's something that you probably don't want to mention up front, but at some point, if you still have their attention and they're still coming to you and talking to you, reach out to the Rape Crisis Center. Their phone number is 210-349-7273. Um, I know that they have a website as well, so you can go and browse that and see what kind of resources they have and how they can help you. Chuck, do you want to add anything to that? No, reach out. You can Google the Rape Crisis Center. It will pop up. and then You can Google them and find out what resources are available to them. CC's giving you the number, 210-349-7273. They have counselors available 24 hours, 365 days a year, and they actually go to the hospitals when victims are brought into the hospitals to begin an advocacy process with them right there. Someone will walk with them along the way. Anything else? No, thanks for listening. Thanks.